0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Creative Processing Podcast. My name is Joe Gordon-Levitt. I'm sick today, pardon me. The idea of this show is to have a conversation about the creative process inspired by one question. That question comes from you out there on the internet asking questions. Uh, And then I find a guest who I think is particularly suited to answer that question. My guest this week is Liv Burry. She is a magnificent thinker writer, speaker. Uh, She's a former professional poker player, one of the most successful poker players of all time, actually. She is a World Series of Poker and European Poker Tour champion, the only female in history to hold both titles. Uh, She also has a degree in astrophysics. She has a fantastic YouTube channel where she talks about science and philosophy, etc., And she's just an all-around fantastic person to have a conversation with. And I think she was particularly good at answering this question. The week's question is from Kent Wilson from Nashville, Tennessee. And the question that Kent asked is, When does data-backed decision-making begin to have a negative impact on the creative process? So... This led us to all kinds of topics. Uh, Liv is really good at breaking down, as Kent brought up, data backed decision making. What is analytical thinking? What is science? What is the difference between science and art? You know, how do you listen to your intuition, your gut, your heart, uh, and balance that with the data, with the logic, with the reason? I think this is particularly pertinent to. Art and creativity because, you know, so much of art and creativity nowadays is further and further integrated with data. You know, when you make a short film and you put it on YouTube, or you take a photograph and you put it on Instagram, you make a song, you put it on SoundCloud, etc., and you're looking at the data. How many times did somebody watch this? What's the views? What's the hearts? What's the likes? What are the subscribers? What's the analytics of my creativity? And uh, I think there's, you could probably tell by my tone of voice, there's, um, it's questionable how valuable that data is. That said, I don't think it's completely useless. And Liv is really good at, I think, parsing where data is valuable and where data should be ignored. And you should just go with your gut how to make those decisions and what it all means for, for being an artist and a creator or just a a human being. I really enjoy this conversation. I think you will too. So let's uh, let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, Liv Berry. Liv Berry, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, so I always laugh. I'm finding I've been listening back to the episodes. We've, this, this is only the what the fifth one that we've recorded. And uh, I've been listening back and I find <laughs> they're like, oh, I'm laughing every time I say hello. And someone says hello back to me. I'm still getting used to the fact that I'm doing a podcast. But uh, it wasn't that funny. But, but I <laughs> laughed. Um, okay, so uh, concept of the show is we have a conversation about the creative process inspired by one question. Okay, I'm going to read you the question, you can take a first crack at it, and then we'll go from there and have any number of tangents about it. But I think you'd be good at answering this question. This is from Kent Wilson from Nashville, Tennessee. When does data-backed decision-making begin to have a negative impact on the creative process?
1: Wow. Oh, that is a good question. So I guess the way to think about it is data is information based upon knowledge and you would think that the more information you have in order to make a decision then the better right because you want your thoughts to mirror reality because if your thoughts mirror reality then you're more likely to be able to navigate that reality and therefore the outcome of your decision is going to be better Mm -hmm. so my first instinct is like it doesn't it's great it's 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 just better you're going to you know if 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 your goal is to make objectively good decisions then there is no such thing as too much data mm-hmm. but i would imagine there would become a point where it starts to stifle you in terms of you just have so much information you don't know how to sift through it and navigate it and you start getting sort of confused or you 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 don't know because of course not all data is created equal uh-huh. Some bits of information are actually very worthwhile to your decision and to your mm. creative process, and some bits are actually neutral, or some bits might actually even be negative. You know, it's it's not. Um, I, so yeah, I guess it depends on sort of the quality of the data. Sure. And then I guess what you've also got to think about is like actually the creative process itself. Are we talking about sort of m- building something out of nothing? So this sort of zero to one, or are we talking about you know sort of thinking outside the box? So, sort of going from, you know, instead of like zero to one, I guess zero to x, and then x plus one, um, and so there might be situations where if you're trying to just really like build some truly original thought, you can't do that if if you're like basing it off or you know existing information. Uh huh. So I guess that there's there's probably some like mathematical function out there. There's a way you can mathematically model this. Yeah. But it would take quite a long time to do to do that.
0: I imagine it would. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's take it out of the abstract a bit and and make it into a, a in a specific example. You're good at poker. Mm-hmm. First of all, would you consider poker playing poker a creative process?
1: Uh, yes and no. So, I mean, ultimately, the job of a poker player is to sort of. Weigh up all these little bits of conflicting information because, of course, the name of the game is deception. Uh-huh. Um, so there are some things which you know you know are objectively true. I know that my two cards—you know—I have an Ace of Hearts and a King of Spades that 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 is locked in but i don't know what my opponent has and i don't know what cards are going to come i don't know what my opponent is feeling what they're thinking how good they are what level of strategy they're they're thinking on whether they're having a good day or a bad day so there's all these like little bits that you have to weigh up and then on top of that they're trying to intentionally give out misinformation um so it's creative in terms of what kind of strategies you want to build well
0: the part that you just said about giving out misinformation that sounds like very familiar to me as an actor right. that's very creative if you're going to sort of be able to tell a story that uh convinces the other players of something that might or might not be true
1: yes so yeah you you've got to you've you've got to sort of try and model what you th- what what they're thinking and then go one step above that, in order mm-hmm. to say okay they, they 're expecting to see this, so how do I give them what they expect to see, but actually manipulate them to do what I want them to do uh-huh. <laughs> uh, without them realizing that they 're being manipulated so yes, that in itself is it requires an ex, you know an extensive amount of creativity that is
0: art <laughs> yeah, yes yeah. That,
1: that that is the art part. and and then and the game is this interesting dichotomy between art and science because the artistic bit are these like these sort of intuitive, fuzzy feelings that we might get, like if you and I are playing. And there's, the, you know, usually there's like a sort of fairly straightforward mathematical solution to, to a situation. Say, you know, say you make a bet mm-hmm. and the amount that you're betting is offering odds in order to call to, to, to win the pot. Right. Um, and so I know that I need to call with, say, you know, 30 percent of the time in order to not be losing money. So that um, sounds
0: data-driven. That,
1: exactly. That's the that's the data-driven bit. That's the sort of hard the hard math. But mm-hmm. then, say I just get an intuitive feeling that actually in this situation, I think you're bluffing. Right. And I don't know why. There's just something about the way that you picked up your chips and put them in or the way you're breathing that is sort of setting off my spidey senses.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Um, but I can't put, quite put my finger on it. And that's where this sort of intuitive, creative process comes in where you're trying to, weigh that up and, and and offset it against what the maths is saying. And sometimes, you know, your intuition and the maths are, are, are you know, and the data are aligned, mm-hmm. and that's great. Now now you've got an easy decision. But when they're conflicting, now you've got a real problem. Yeah. And so what I tend to do there is, you know, like, so say the the, the data says I need to call 30% of the time, but my my gut is saying no 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 in this situation actually you 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 need to call much more than that cuz i think he's, he's i think he's bluffing well i'm not going to go and call 100% of the time still you know i'm not going to call with all you know even my worst cards yeah um so now what i might do is just shift that frequency from 30% up to say 50% or 60% based on the sort of strength of belief in what my gut is telling me
0: when you say frequency do you mean because you're playing multiple times or do you mean in this one hand you think he's bluffing and you are giving yourself a 30 percent chance of wanting to call or
1: kind of so what what it means is that of all the range of cards that I could conceivably have in this situation so you know, just maybe the way the game is played, I wouldn't necessarily have like the really crappy hands like, you know, seven seven two right. three four. Those those are presumably no longer in my range of hands, but let's say I have everything from two sevens up to two aces and king ten and better. Okay. Um so out of that range, I want to be calling with at least thirty percent of those. Okay. Um, you know, math as a standard math. But because I now have, you know, a strong feeling that you're bluffing, actually I might want to extend that range from 30% to, of all those cards to um, 50% of all those combinations.
0: Uh, I see. Okay. And so then you make your final decision. You, you try to sort of an ass- assign a numerical value to your intuition. Exactly. And then combine that with the other more mathematically deduced factors.
1: Yes. Yeah. So it's still and you're doing so, all that
0: math in your head while you're playing?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, like with, with experience you learn to do that. Okay. And Okay, that's impressive. It, it's definitely still though. It's it's not like exact. And I think that's what really sort of sets, you know, a great poker player apart from an average one is that ability to to quantify their uncertainty. Uh you, you know and and, and incorporate Numbers and quantification into their creative process,
0: right? Because I imagine—I mean, when I play poker, and I imagine most people listening to this, when you get together with your friends and you play poker, you're not doing any math in your head. You're drinking, right? <laughs> and like, just kind of—it's more of a game of chance, and more, like you said, the emphasis is on can I bluff and I deceive these guys. Yeah, but
1: it's—it's more—it's more artistic. Yeah, it's—it's it's less scientific. It's—it's it's less thinking about well. I, you know, we're going to be playing this game out over, you know, if I played this out over infinite scenarios, then I would want to do this, you know, I'd want to bluff here this this often and 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 uh, fold here this often. No, you're just sort of playing in the moment you don't know when you're going to go you're going to be playing next right you just know that your buddy this guy tends to be really scared and this guy tends to be really aggressive so you just sort of adjust accordingly and that's i mean that and that's totally fine i mean that that is still sort of the nitty-gritty of the game but if you want to be playing on sort of like a world-class level then you need to sort of uh sort of familiarize yourself with this it's actually a branch of mathematics called game theory um, i've
0: heard of that but i don't know exactly what it
1: means so, so game theory is basically just sort of the, the math of games in terms of, like, how do you build optimal mathematical strategies. Um, it was, if you saw the film A Beautiful Mind.
0: Yeah, when it came out a long time ago, yeah. Yeah, about
1: a guy called uh, John Nash. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, very, very troubled mind, um, but absolute genius. And he discovered that there's this, this thing sort of called a Nash equilibrium, um, which is basically if you have two perfectly playing players basically you're the sort of strategy and counter strategy and, and so on until you get to this sort of equilibrium where if both people are playing this style then it is unprofitable for either one to to deviate from it. Right. And you're both kind of stuck there. Right. In in this in this perfect mm. style of play. And so the goal of a, of a poker player is to know what this this optimal style of play is and then when they notice their opponent doing something stupid you know deviating from it Mm -hmm. then 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 they themselves will like switch up and and exploit their play Uh Um, but in order to play you know to be able to exploit someone really you need to know what perfect play is first right so that's sort of what this game theory optimal is
0: and is perfect play always ignoring the gut feeling and only ever going by what's probabilistically the best thing to do no oh it's not
1: no well mathematically perfect play is basically it's like how you would play in a vacuum right. if you don't have these like gut feelings right. and so on. If if I couldn't see you if I was so like if we were just playing online for example yeah, and assuming I don't have any other like little bits of information like how long it took you to make a decision these little bits are sort of almost metadata. Right. Um, if, if we were playing like that then yes I would I would try and play this mathematically game theory optimal style. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I can see you and I can see you sort of taking a little breath or <laughs> right. pausing for a second, you know, maybe intentionally pausing, you know, all these little extra bits of, of more fluffy information, i I would be stupid to overlook those because that is still valuable information. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if my gut is telling me really strongly, actually no, he's he's got it, he's got he's got the nuts, he's got a really good hand. Right. Um, it would be dumb of me to to overlook that.
0: Right. Okay. So
1: the so the finesse is knowing how and when to go with these like, extra bits of information.
0: With your gut. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And the funny thing is, though, is that we tend to always we tend to remember more often the times we were right and uh-huh. forget about the times we were wrong. Uh-huh. So when people often say, well, how often is your gut right or wrong? I'm like, I, I, I don't truly really know, but right. I, I should always try and factor in the fact that egos tend to like to sort of downplay the, the mistakes that we make.
0: Yeah. Well, so I I think all of this is fascinating because, you know, I I only play poker a little bit, but to me, this is all applicable to what I do and and what I consider the creative process because there's a lot of data analytics that gets talked about in terms of, for example, movies. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're making a movie, when you're editing it, they'll do test screenings and they'll say, well... 80% of the audience thought this or that. And only 15% of the audience thought this or that. So we should therefore maybe edit this a little differently. And I admit, historically and, and generally, I'm really reticent. I'm very, very reticent to listen to that kind of data when it comes to making creative decisions, um, you know, other data points people talk about, though, are, you know, well, there's box office people pay a lot of attention to, you know, there's a whole science to what movies will make how much money if you release them when and mm-hmm. based on this or that market research, they'll do surveys. They've gotten it down to they can very accurately predict before a movie comes out. Based on certain like market research surveys, they make phone calls and, and ask. How many people are aware of the movie? How many people want to go to the movie, et cetera? And they can predict within a, a pretty slim margin correctly how much money a movie is going to make. So, if you care about how much money the movie makes, which, uh, of course, I'd like to say I don't care, but it it does matter in terms of you know future opportunities, Absolutely. et cetera. Yeah. Uh, there there clearly is something quantifiable going on. And so I, I'm interested now, I think we're in the past, when I was younger, I, I would have just said, like, fuck all that. I don't give a shit. Now I'm like, okay, well, let me, let me hear what, you know, the analytics have to say, at least, and let me weigh it against what my gut is telling me. I should say, though, that there are also times where the the data can be wrong like mm. i've i've been in movies where the test screenings score very high in such a way that like usually a movie that scores that high with audiences performs like this at the box office and then that doesn't happen cuz it's complicated i think a lot of this stuff is pretty unpredictable but um but there is some something to it
1: i mean i guess the question is is like at what stage in your creative process, say when you're, you know, if you're coming up with a concept for a movie, I assume you're involved in the sort of script writing as well, right? Sometimes. Right. So at what stage do you start letting the, the audience data filter in? Mm-hmm. Presumably you don't want it at the very beginning, right? When you're coming up with the original concept. Yeah. Or do you?
0: Well, there definitely are folks in Hollywood who begin it that way who say the data says that if we make this movie with this kind of actor, this genre and blah, 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 then it'll be good. So those are our marching orders. Now let's hire a writer to come Hmm. up with a script that meets those criteria. Usually that, no, that's not how I like to do it. um, Because I, I love what I would call, I don't know, what I think of as the creative That doesn't to me sound like creative. I don't know. Then again, I am a fan of uh, restraints and like being given a prompt being saying like, okay, here's your limits. You know, you have to come up with a story that has these elements that can be fun, but no, I've never done it in such a way that optimizes for, you know, box office in the future based on this or that data, but they're probably, frankly... There probably are some good movies that are made that way. I mean, depending on what you consider good.
1: Right. Of course. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the beauty of art, right? There's...
0: But so you do, you do various writing and speaking and stuff, which t- to me is quite similar to making movies. It's telling stories. It's getting mm-hmm. ideas across. How much do you pay attention to data or how much is your decision-making data-driven?
1: Um, so with things like talks... Getting reliable, solid data is actually very hard. I mean, yes, I'll get feedback afterwards. You know, what what did the audience like, and so on. How did they rate my my slides, and so on. But it's actually relatively undata driven. I would like it to be more so, just because, again, it's my you know my background before was always science, so mm-hmm. my you know data is my safe space. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's I have to say I feel a bit rudderless not having any. But at the same time, I'm really enjoying this this entirely different process of just going like, what are my three most interesting stories? What, what are stories that I, I guess, again, I have data on of telling people before where they're like, oh, that's so cool. right? Knowing that people have enjoyed that in the past, be like, okay, I'm going to start the talk off with this. I know that that has made people laugh. And then I'll just try and sort of think of what, what are the key lessons I want them to take home? You know, like it's important to try and th- quantify your uncertainty or... Mm-hmm. um you know don't don't overvalue your gut intuition uh it's not magic or something like that you know whatever my key sort of points that I want to hit is
0: that a key point you make
1: yeah um don't
0: overvalue oh that's exactly what we're talking about right
1: right now. um well because it it seems like general consensus is not not consensus but the, the sort of general belief of many people these days is that your intuitions are magic they are tapped into some higher source maybe they are but there's not an overwhelming amount of evidence to suggest that's the case. But what mm-hmm. we do know about intuition is that it is basically this unconscious process that comes about um, and, and, and is best f- suited for things that, A, can't be broken down into smaller constituent parts. So, like, picking out a color socks for our friend's birthday, mm-hmm. something like that. Um but B, for situations that we have tons and tons of experience in, so decisions that we've made many, many times. But people tend to sort of conflate that and go, well, I can just use my intuition for everything because, I I mean, I don't understand it, but because because it's tapped into some magical source, it knows better than anything I ever could. And so they then start using it for, you know, Career path decisions, yeah, or you know should I which house should I buy? you know is now a good time to buy a house? I'll just go with your gut, and I think people tend to do that because they don't want to do the hard work of like looking at the data and doing a cost benefit analysis and so on, right, and so the message I try to to put out there is like you know use your intuition in moderation, and particularly when it comes for really big life decisions, just sort of check in with yourself and ask. You know, am I shrugging my shoulders and going with my gut because genuinely there is no data out there for me to use, Mm -hmm. or am I just being actually lazy?
0: But so, if you're making a decision, I mean, it's different than uh, a life decision like who you're going to marry or whatever. But any creative process is made up of many, many decisions. Am I going to make the character this way or that way? Right. And you know, so is there a way that you would suggest incorporating data into? I mean, because I I think. When I'm in the middle of a creative process and I'm making those decisions, I would say it's probably, it's pretty much all intuitive. It's, it's what it feels, it's what feels right to me.
1: But that's because you've been doing this for how long now? 20 years?
0: Yeah, uh, like 30 years. Yeah, that's, okay, I see. And
1: so you have tons of data, tons of life experience in terms of making movies, of choosing characters.
0: That's interesting. So Maybe let's talk about what exactly data is. Good
1: point. So data can be numbers on a spreadsheet. It can be, you know, historical box office figures. But it can also be data about your own state of mind when you've, when you've made a movie. Uh, I guess when you've written a script and you've sort of read through it a few times and gone, you know what, this, this is good. Uh-huh. Like that's a data point, right? Just that internal feeling that you've gotten when you've given it to someone else to read and they've gone, yeah, I think I think there's potential here or actually no. This this arc here doesn't make m- make much sense. Mm-hmm. That's a data point. So, so even
0: your gut intuition, your gut reaction to the script you would call a data point.
1: Yeah. It's you know, it, it, may, it might not be as a reliable data point as as box office figures, but it's still a data point to an extent. So
0: mm-hmm. what makes data reliable or not reliable?
1: Um I guess something is reliable in that if you used it again in another situation it would have a high likelihood of success of predicting what happens right so it's it's predictive power it's this what- is the
0: scientific method is what we're really kind of talking about isn't right. it right i you know you know my wife tasha mm-hmm. she's really good at thinking scientifically and i got pretty good grades in science classes in school etc but i realize in i have realized in recent years especially since getting to know her, that my understanding of science was really limited before I started having conversations with her. And she started saying things like what you're saying, data point, replicability, can, mm-hmm. likelihood, probability, stuff like that. I didn't really... I don't think I really understood that that's what science is.
1: Right. People think of science as this, like, body of knowledge, of of facts about the universe and reality that you just sort of, you either know or you don't. Um, And that's a shame because that's unfortunately how they, how it's mostly taught in schools. Right. But what science truly is, is this sort of process of truth seeking, of sort of curiosity and humility and of asking a question about this, about the world that we're in. Mm -hmm. Like, why does the sun Rise in in the east and set in the west, mm-hmm. and then designing some kind of experiment to test a prediction that you make about it. So a hypothesis. Uh, you know, I I hypothesize. I predict that the reason is is because actually there's a big stick behind it and someone (laughs) lifting it up and taking it over Mm -hmm. that's a hypothesis and and then you design an experiment to test whether that hypothesis is true right but you don't just look for the information that would confirm it you also look for the information that would falsify it too right um and then
0: oftentimes you have to do that experiment many 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 times and then that's to where verify,
1: the... yeah, to verify that. So because at the end of it, you'll come to a conclusion, and your conclusion might be actually no, it's not because there's a, a man with a stick. Mm-hmm. It's because um, the Earth is spinning, yeah. and and the, and the sun is actually this kind of fixed point, and, and we're spinning as we go around it, right. and so it appears to do this. Um, so now you've come to your conclusion, mm-hmm. but if you want to take it one step further, you then say, okay, well, this is my conclusion. It should predict further behavior. So now maybe you should try and test it from a different point on Earth or, you know, test it from another planet to see if that that's the same thing that's going on. Right. So, yeah, it's this process of of truth-seeking mm-hmm. that sort of then results in you being able to sort of predict what the universe is going to do. That is science.
0: Yeah, it, it's like you said. I, in school, science is more just... Teaching all the knowledge that scientists have, have already accumulated. The, right. But it's not yeah. teaching you so much how to use the scientific method to actually learn things.
1: Exactly. Or and and then it applies to almost everything that we do. So it applies to me when I play poker. You know, when I am playing against you mm-hmm. and you make a bet, mm-hmm. I might have a hypothesis that you're full of shit. Yeah. And then I look for vo- ways to test it. Maybe I'll, you know, I'll raise you and see how you behave. Mm-hmm. If you then actually call my raise, I'm like, Ooh, okay, maybe maybe my hypothesis was wrong. I should update accordingly. Uh-huh. Um, or if it's, you know, in your love life, you think that actually, you know, your partner, you're not sure whether or not to propose to your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have a hypothesis that actually they're scared. Well, you can test that, you know, and, uh, and that's doing science. Right. Everything where we sort of have a curiosity or a question and we design an experiment in order to find out the answer to that question is doing science.
0: Right. And where does data come into it?
1: So data is basically the information that you get back from your experiment. Mm-hmm. As, you, as you conduct it, as you, as you test things, you'll receive data um, about that you know the way the world reacts to whatever you do, right whether it's your partner or whatever. Um, and that the, that data is information. The, these are these data points that you can then use to sort of update your mental model of the world.
0: right. And then I think the part for me that was counterintuitive was just because you saw something happen once, that doesn't mean that it'll happen that way every time. Right. and that's way, why you have to run any given experiment thousands of thousands of times, and then it doesn't happen exactly the same every time. But you look at how many times out of the 10,000 times we ran this experiment, well, 8,000 of the times, this is what happened. So that means there's an 80% chance or odds that it'll happen that way again.
1: Right. Yeah, because the world is inherently very, very complex and hard to predict, and there's a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these variables. There's so many different things that can happen that can sort of, you know, maybe if you only do your experiment once or twice, there might be so much noise that the that the results you get actually aren't that meaningful. But if you run the experiment ten thousand times, mm-hmm. that reduces this sort of noise factor. And I mean, this is a huge part of poker, right? Because, um, you know, with a game like chess if you and I sat down and played, whichever one of us is the better chess player will just win with almost certainly. And, you know, unless, like, the board cracks in half or some random (laughs) event like (laughs) that happens. Um, But poker, you know, if you and I... Presumably, I'm the better player. If you and I sat down and played... (laughs)
0: Definitely.
1: If we played 10 hands... (laughs) But I might just be saying that. Of course. (laughs) Um, If we played 10 hands, I would expect to win something like 52% of the time, something like that. But if we played 10,000 hands... Now I expect to win, like, 95%. And the more we play, if we could play infin- infinite hands, then presumably, you know, then it would tend towards 100%. So there's this, like, noise factor, the luck factor. Um, and this, the luck factor, it gets in the way of life too. So that's, that's, a, say, the tricky thing with, like, movies. Yeah. You you know, movies are very slow things. You don't get to make that many of them in your life. It's you, true. You might only make, I don't know, 10, 20 if you're lucky. hmm so it could be that maybe your creative process is actually very, very bad, but you get really lucky and, and, and so you just go, well, this worked and so you do it again. Um, and then, you know, you make one great movie and the rest flop or the inverse. Mm-hmm. Actually, your creative process is really, really good, but you get unlucky because of a certain world event that just distracts everybody from it on its opening weekend or, mm-hmm. you know, the one of the actors in it something stupid in the press and that you know it so it makes it flop and and like the real you know the real sort of again thing that sort of sets a great movie maker apart from a bad one is is the ability to identify whether you got lucky or whether you actually did it right
0: yeah well and this is i think probably why i and and many others intuitively disregard data like box office when saying oh this is this is a great movie Whether or not it made money at the box office to me is not... There's so many, like you say, there's so many noisy determining factors of what's going to make a movie perform well at the box office and the quality of the movie Is only one of those many, many, many factors. And so.
1: But what do you even mean by quality as well? Like that in itself is such a loaded word.
0: You're so right. Your
1: your definition of quality might be very different to mine. Yours might be the sort of cinematic, you know, qualia of it. I don't know. Sure. uh, Well,
0: to me, that gets at if you had to define what's art, to me, it's that. It's that there is no. Objective determination of whether it's good or not. It's subjective. Mm. And depending on who's watching the movie or reading the book or listening to the song or whatever, they will have their own experience with it. And each one of those experiences is valid. And someone might really love the movie and someone else might really hate the movie. And that's why it's art because both of those people are right. Mm. And that's different than science. The whole, To me, the whole point of science is, no, you're trying to get to an objective truth here. Right. Uh, it's not subjective.
1: And, I mean, now we're getting really into the sort of philosophical weeds. But <laughs> there are some people out there, you know, very esteemed thinkers who claim that even even reality itself does not have an objective base. Way, way, way. Yeah, was yeah. this guy called uh, Donald Hoffman who I was listening to recently. Um, most of the sort of physicists and scientists I know sort of just poo-poo his ideas. But basically, um, he's arguing that reality, there, there is no sort of base physics reality, and that actually it's, it, it arises as a result of sort of interactions between consciousnesses. And so, okay. you know, our conversation right now is giving rise to our little reality and and were we not here, it just, it wouldn't really exist. Um, mm. But that's perhaps a little beyond the scope of this.
0: Well, that's the whole, if the tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear exactly. it, does it make a sound?
1: Yeah. But I mean, these, these are truly important fundamental questions because like how you know, how can we, you know, if we want to build a flourishing world, we need to really understand what what are the building blocks of reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's important, again, like someone, even though he, you know, these ideas are so outlandish that it's probably not going to be the case. We need people like that asking these really out-of-the-box questions.
0: You mentioned that at the beginning, I wrote it down, thinking out of the box. How can thinking out of the box go hand-in-hand with data-driven decision-making?
1: I mean, I guess... The sort of first, the main thing that comes to mind is that data it sort of contributes towards knowledge. So the more data we have, the more area of knowledge we have, and so the bigger the boxes. Yeah, and that means that someone who's thinking out of the box is technically, you know, coming up with novel ideas outside of that. Right. So I guess what data would sort of help with is that the more data you have, the more sort of solid. And, and confirmed your area, your body of knowledges. And therefore, when you do come up with something that's outside of it, you, you sort of, you, you're, you're more into the weeds. Right. And, and you're drawing on perhaps something brand new. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's what data kind of provides. It pro- provides a sort of delineation between what is already known and what is unknown.
0: I want to bring up another question to do with intuition versus, I guess, analytics. Um, in the world of professional poker, this is a game largely uh, the, the highest ranked players are more often men than women. Is that right? Yeah. In a pretty strong degree. Mm-hmm. So you're a woman in this male-dominated field. And there's a stereotype in terms of kind of gender roles that males are more analytical and females are more intuitive. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably as correct as any stereotype, um, which is to say not necessarily correct at all. So yeah. t- tell me your, your thoughts on that stereotype.
1: So I don't think, you know, I I, I know the sort of conventional wisdom, sorry, not conventional wisdom, but the the, the the convention right now is to say that everybody is a blank slate, that actually were all men and women just like not even aware of the fact that they were men and women from a young age, you know, not put into boxes, that actually everyone would converge and we would get equal numbers of men being intuitive as women and, and men being analytical as women. Controversially, I actually don't think that's s- strictly true. I think that there are, you know, every, you know, first of all, we know that gender is not a binary thing, it's definitely a spectrum, as mm-hmm. are, you know, brain types and so on. But on average, for whatever reasons, whether it's evolutionary, for whatever, women tend to be more emotionally intuitive. We're better at reading people. Um, And on average, a male brain tends to prefer getting into the weeds of like very abstract analytical concepts. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we don't have Many men who are way over here and many women who are way over there.
0: Yeah, that's the thing about saying on average. Right? Exactly,
1: and that's and that's the thing. So, it, so it's, it ultimately comes down to this, you know, this question of you know, is it um, environment or um,
0: nature versus uh, yeah, nature? Yeah. yeah, it comes
1: down it comes down to the nature versus nature. I was just uh, talking about that. Yeah. And my answer is, I think it's all a bit of both. You know, why is it that it's, n- it's ninety five, maybe even ninety six percent of poker players are male? Professional poker profession- players. professional poker players are male. Yeah. Um, it's a mixture of society of sexism. There's definitely still sexism, um, but also of some kind of you know biological pre-existing reasons that tends to make men enjoy higher risk things because poker is obviously a very risky thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very complex mix of reasons. That said, you know I still think it's a very good thing that we are encouraging to break you know encouraging people to break these these gender stereotypes because there are societal reasons that are reinforcing them mm-hmm. um, but you know the idea that we'll ever have like exactly 50-50 men and women playing with poker professionally I think is um it is it's just so unlikely to happen because there is this pre-existing like tendencies that, that makes it more statistically likely um, you know it's it's like the same in chess you know people often say well why you know why is the number one in chess it's always been a man well It's it's first of all because more men, on average, tend to want to dedicate their entire life to studying it, Mm -hmm. and so you have when you. But is that
0: just something they learned because men are encouraged to do that thing more than, or boys are encouraged to do that kind of thing more than girls are?
1: Some of that that is definitely a contributing factor, but it's also because I think, on average, men tend to obsess over one thing, women women tend to be good at many many things whereas men tend to be very very good at one or two things.
0: Tend to be. Tend
1: to. Right. Exactly. And that's and that's the key thing. But people will then often misquote you and go, "Oh, so you believe that's that's the the fact." No, no, no. It's it's again it's it's a very complex tricky issue.
0: Well, it gets back to what we were talking about with data and statistics and it's the I admit that it's counterintuitive for me and I again I've gotten more used to understanding language like this because Tasha is good at Mm -hmm. at negotiating ideas like this, but yeah, intuitively when you hear a statement like men tend to obsess over a specific thing more and women tend to be good at a larger number of things, my mind instantly goes to, yeah, but I know this woman or that woman. You think of the counterexamples. Yeah.
1: Yes. would, And and there should be, there should be examples of people that go against it, but you have to, you don't just think of the, oh, I know three people. It's, Three people out of how many? You then right. think of all the, like, thousands of women or the thousands of men you, that you know. Mm-hmm. And if you then actually compare those those outliers to the general pool, mm-hmm. you will then realize that they are probably outliers.
0: Right. Um, I guess the concern is if you put too much credence in that kind of average then you're going to... to further
1: reinforce it yeah exactly and and that's and that's why this topic in general, like I feel nervous even talking about it, honestly yeah, I feel nervous too <laughs> right. no it, because it's because they're, you know I think where, what it falls down to is then you're like, well, what do we do about it mm-hmm. And there are some people who say, oh, we don't need to do anything about it, and there are others who say that no, it's a big problem mm-hmm. and you know, I, I still think we need to do something about it to improve because, you know, because, you know, like it's still unacceptable. Like, for example, how few women are, are studying physics mm-hmm. or, or, you know, how few men are. Um, I can't think of an example. But, <laughs> but there are <laughs> it's things. It's definitely where,
0: not symmetrical. That's the right, thing. That, right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> um, and that's why it's a politically hot topic, because we haven't figured out. The, the answer is not clear. Right. You know, same with like things like Brexit. There are actually arguments on, you know, from various different directions, and 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 it's not clear cut what to do.
0: Mm. Um, when something's complicated,
1: exactly, they're extremely complex, multifactorial, multi-causal issues.
0: Yeah, it feels like. I mean, you're, we're we're getting into politics now, but I was having a conversation on this podcast uh, with uh, the artist Shepard Ferry. I don't know if you've ever met him. He's no. he does a lot of really politically oriented art. Um, And we were talking about sort of this question that you and I are now talking about, which is how much do you listen to your intuition, your gut, versus how much do you listen to the data, to the analytics, to the logic, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And art is really good at tapping into someone's intuition. That's what art is really good for. And I was asking Shepard, like, is that... Is that a good thing when it comes to politics? Like, shouldn't we be making more logically-driven, data-driven decisions when it comes to things like government and policy and stuff like that?
1: Right. I mean, art is something where emotions are fine. You know, Uh like one of the main drivers behind art, I think, is to create an emotional response in people.
0: That is it. Yeah,
1: exactly. Politics, I think, is, you know, or or policy and science in general is is kind of the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to minimize our emotions that, you know, are involved in the process of, of, of making decisions, but also what comes out of it as well.
0: Why do you want to minimize emotions?
1: Because emotions, again, to just draw to the poker analogy, you don't want, when you're playing poker, I think most people can agree, you don't want to be emotional when you're playing. Mm-hmm. We, all, we all know that, you know, you, you look for the emotional player to target. If there's someone who's upset or drunk or excited or nervous, those are the people you want to play against.
0: Because you're going to take their Why?
1: money. Why? Because we think that they're making bad decisions. They're not thinking clearly. They're not thinking logically and, and, and strategically and rationally.
0: That's a great analogy.
1: And so that... You know, poker is a little game, uh, sort of mini simplified game for life, you know, where you're trying to make a complex decision. You know, life is even more complex than poker, multi-variables, etc. So if we don't want our emotions involved in our decision making in poker, we certainly don't want it involved in our politics. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I think that sort of is why we don't, you know, when, when people are like, well, no, I, I want to go with my heart on, yeah. on this topic. Again, I think that's us sort of falling back to, ah, this is really complex. I don't really know how to think about this. There's a lot of data. I don't know how to weigh them up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to shrug my shoulders and go with my gut. Yeah. And it's this it's, it's like going with the gut to justify being intellectually lazy. Yeah. And so. But
0: it works with art.
1: Exactly. Because that
0: is the domain of.
1: Because art is safe as well. Like there aren't any. I mean, there might be sometimes, but there's rarely any like life or death consequences coming from art. Right. In an ideal world.
0: Right. Right. But
1: in politics, there are. Yeah. If we make bad decisions relating to how we deal with like, you know, climate change or Mm -hmm. immigration or anything like that, these are literal lives on the line. Yeah. And that's bad. Um, That's why we need to. I mean, and and in general, like anything to do with philanthropy. Yeah. We think of philanthropy as again like, oh well, you know, you, you it's about doing the right thing. Yeah. And how do we know what's the right thing? We go with our with our heart. That's not always strictly true, because yeah. the heart can be biased. Mm-hmm. The heart is, you know, emotions can cloud our judgment and we can't even see that our judgment's being clouded. And that can be very, very dangerous. Right. Um and there's this area of philanthropy called um effective altruism. That's which, how I know you. Right. That's exactly that's how we know each other. Yeah. It's it's this idea of Combining the heart of philanthropy with also the head mm-hmm. and incorporating this sort of scientific method, this, this sort of objectivity and this, this, this coolness and rationality um, in terms of like figuring out, okay, we've got so many problems in the world because we've only got limited resources. Which do we prioritize first? Mm-hmm. How do we sort of triage the world's problems? Because it's like, you know, like a nurse in a hospital, right? Mm-hmm. In the ER. Yeah. It's got, you know, say like some terrible thing happens and you've got some people coming in with broken legs and some people with a sore throat and some like literally about to die. Her, she has the worst job in the world, he or she, uh, to, yeah. uh, to say, okay, well, I'm going to give two doctors to this person and three doctors to this person and I'm sorry, but you're going to have to wait eight hours.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but someone's got to do that. Right. And we've got the same thing going on in the world right now where we have all these conflicting issues and some of which are more urgent than others. And we have to with a sort of cool... An emotional head, decide, okay, this is where we're going to focus on first, and and so on,
0: right that's interesting, so it feels like I mean, so getting back to our central question, it almost feels like art is the place where you can indulge your gut and your heart, because, like you said, making a movie is not the same as engineering a bridge. If the movie right. sucks, no one's going to die, but if the bridge falls down, then people could die exactly so you can take that risk to go with your gut and follow your heart and just be emotionally driven with how you make your art. Um, Whereas you don't want to do that when it comes to assigning the doctors in the emergency room. You want to make those decisions in a more data-driven way. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, You know, I mean, a lot of people often think of Rationality, and they think of it as actually about, oh, it's about removing your emotions entirely. But I disagree with that because emotions are what ultimately make us human. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much we want to become, you know, I, I say I want to be completely emotionless at the poker table, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I still get upset when I lose or mm-hmm. if someone says something to me to wind me up. Mm-hmm. To be truly rational, we have to learn to work with our emotions, not completely eradicate them. Yeah. And so it's 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 this sort of fine line of, acknowledging that they're there but you know gaining what we need from them because like emotions can be very motivating too mm-hmm. um they can they can drive us to you know like when we're thinking about the world's problems to to drive us to want to fix them in the first place but that's right it's it's about tempering them so that they don't cloud our judgment and make us do something rash or un you know undoable
0: and i guess that's the artist's job then is to stimulate those emotions to get people to like okay let's Let's do this. We care about this. Let's do something about it. But now once we care, now let's like try to cool down our emotions and think rationally about what to do. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I got my marching orders. Um, Can I ask you one more question? Mm. I've enjoyed in these episodes, we get all these different questions and some of them can inspire an entire conversation about the creative process, like the one we've just been talking about in terms of data versus intuition. Some of them are just kind of funny or off topic, uh, as okay. you can imagine, would come through on the internet. And I've been enjoying asking one of those at the end. You ready for an off topic question? Yes. All right. <clears throat> this, is a, this is a good one. Uh, this one comes from Chantel Don from Rancho Santa Margarita, California. In the next stage of human evolution, what are we born without? Or what are we additionally born with? Wow.
1: The thing that sort of immediately comes to mind on that question, you know, we both, can I say that you were at Burning Man? Sure, sure. (laughs) Yeah. So we just both got back from Burning Man, right? Yeah. And to me, Burning Man, I know a lot of people who've never been are often sick of hearing about, you know, all of us weird hippies proselytizing about it. But to me, Burning Man is like an example of utopia of what what humanity at its best could be. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we're sort of at our best there is because we found a way to do, to sort of get rid of imbalance and, and scarcity, inequality and scarcity. Mm-hmm. To me, the next optimal stage of, you know, human evolution is we have found a way to create radical abundance um, to the point that we aren't, wanting for anything we're not needing for anything mm-hmm. because then when we're free of needing for things we have the the mental space to actually play and do art right you know burning man is is the world championships of art and partying right <laughs> and so that is what I want to, us to be striving for, is mm-hmm. to find a way that we have taken care of our sort of Maslow hierarchy of needs mm-hmm. where everyone has got enough to eat, everyone has got enough to, you know, love and, and so on, to, to, to feel satiated so that we can now get to that next sort of stage of, of, of mental play yeah. and imagination to truly, like, play with our emotions and our art, as we discussed. Yeah. That's what science, I think is should be trying to do is to is to figure out how we can create enough resources for everybody so that we create then the freedom for people to do what they want. But then some people argue that well, humans need strife to an extent to in order to to make themselves feel worthwhile, like they need work to do.
0: Oh, I hope it doesn't have to be strife
1: well. Uh, some some people do really believe that, but or some yeah. at least think that we need sort of work and, and uh, to to make us feel like we're doing something worthwhile. Mm-hmm. But that said, like you know, most artists would say, well, yes, it's my work, but I'm not, you know, it's it's not like they're they're doing like conventional work, and they I, I'd like to think they find meaning out of what they do, right? Yeah, so, very
0: much so. What's what's also interesting to me though is that when you think of evolution, this was, this question was about the next stage of human evolution. You think of emotions as being more primitive earlier in the progression of evolution right. you think of intellect and reason and science as further along that progression and yet what you're talking about is and you know, we need to use the intellect and the science and stuff so that we can all be taken care of so we can ultimately get back to that
1: well yeah, emotions. So, so that we can it's more that we can then choose which emotions we we get to feel I think that's, Uh you know, because we've got, you know, there's a a wide subset of emotions, some which are great and some which really suck. Yeah. We can use the the sort of next stage of logic and reason and science to then get us to a point where everything's more comfortable, Mm -hmm. where we just get to play with the fun emotions. Right. And, uh, you know, some people like genuinely get fun out of being angry. That's fine. But yep. the point is that you have the freedom to <laughs> yeah. choose Go to know, a the punk freedom rock show. exactly the freedom yeah. to to you know you you get to be in charge of your emotions as opposed to being subject to whatever is arising because of your you know shitty circumstances.
0: Next stage of human evolution we eliminate scarcity then. Yeah. That's, kind of, okay. that's, that's, that's the
1: a goal. Great answer.
0: Thank you. Let's do it. <laughs> Deal. Thanks Liv, thank you so much for thank being you.
1: here. Thank you. This is amazing. This was so much fun.
0: All right, that is our show. Thanks for listening. Big thank you, of course, to our guest, Liv Burry. I really do highly recommend you check out her uh, new YouTube channel. She's making great videos about a lot of the stuff that we talked about today, science, philosophy, uh, effective altruism. If that was something that piqued your curiosity, she's really good at talking about that. So, yeah, check her out. Thank you also to the folks who asked this week's question, Kent Wilson. You can find on the Internet at Digital. Hmm. There's there's no good way to pronounce this (laughs) I'm just going to spell it At D-G-T-L Underscore M-A-D-M-A-N I guess digital madman Uh, And also uh, the off-topic question uh, Asked by our good friend Chantel Don At (laughs) How do you pronounce that? Shanny Dan (laughs) At C-H-A-N-Y-D-A-N-H if you want to ask a question to inspire an episode of uh, this here show, uh, you can email creativeprocessing at hitrecord.org or use hashtag creativeprocessing and ask the question on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, come check out HitRecord. We're making uh, collaborative art about some of the topics that we touch on in this show. If you want to go beyond the chat and uh, get creative... Did I just say get creative? Get, cre- get creative... Uh, we're you know doing illustration, writing, you give your own answer. People are putting together videos inspired by some of these ideas. Uh, so you can check out hitrecord.org slash creative processing. The producers of the Creative Processing Podcast are Lexi Tankersley, Raymond Way, audio produced by Keir Schmidt, thanks to Cadence13 and everyone at the Hit Record office. And of course, most of all, thanks to you for listening. Thanks again, see you next week.